Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So as I mentioned to you on the opening night, I've come here from San Francisco, where it's about 65 degrees now. And uh, I come to the East Coast from time to time, but I usually don't come exactly this time of year. So I was remembering when was the last time I was here uh, around this time, which was also about the last time I've ever felt this cold before. And it was actually uh, January 21st, 2013. So it was the MLK weekend uh, two years ago when I was in Washington, D.C. for the second inauguration of uh, Barack Obama. And I had uh, gotten tickets from our representative, Representative Pelosi's office, to go to the uh, inauguration. And then with some friends, we were going to the uh, inaugural ball and so on. Which involved, uh, you know, going to the inauguration, if you're not a VIP, involves standing for hours uh, in the cold somewhere or another. Uh, so we stood there for a really long time, and my friends actually got so cold that they decided to go into uh, one of their offices and watch on a big screen instead of live. But I was committed I was going to see this live, you know. I didn't come from California to go watch a TV set, right? Could have done that at home. And I was so glad that I did because it was such an inspiring uh, speech for me. And one of the most compelling parts of it was a surprise part for me when uh, Obama says, we the people declare today that the most evident of truths, that all of us are created equal, is the star that guides us still. Just as it guided our forebearers through Seneca Falls and Selma and Stonewall, just as it guided all those men and women, sung and unsung, who left footprints along this great mall to hear a preacher say that we cannot walk alone, to hear a king proclaim that our individual freedom is inextricably bound to the freedom of every soul on earth. So this was on the second inauguration of Obama, which was also the 150th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation and Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. So uh, it struck me very much, and having been part of different social movements and movements for social justice in my life, I, I found it very meaningful. So what I'd like to talk to you about today is holding our practice in a larger vision, a larger picture. So connecting some of the things that were spoken about, about justice and about freedom, to our training here, you know, what we've been doing here, sitting and walking uh, quietly for this weekend, how, how these seemingly different things are connected. And I want to tell you a few stories uh, from social justice movements, uh, and also just talk about the Dharma, which is really my favorite topic, too. So if, in case people are unfamiliar with two of those other uh, mentions in the speech Seneca Falls was the site of the first women's right convention in the U.S. on the right to vote in 1848. 
And that movement took a long time. It took several generations, but uh, finally, by the 1920s, women had the right to vote. And the mention of Stonewall is the mention of the Stonewall Riots, 1969, which is largely pointed out as the kickoff of uh, gay rights movement in the United States, and to some extent, uh, more broadly speaking, too. And Selma is not just the name of a recent movie, but also the uh, actually a place in Alabama, the historical place where a very important uh, march around voting rights for African Americans took place in the 50s. So maybe I'll start with talking about the Dharma a little bit. And what does seven mean, Dharma? You know, what is this about truth? And how is this truth connected to the liberation that's being talked about uh, by Obama or about by by these social movements? You know, there are many different translations of Dharma. My favorite ones are the translations that talk about Dharma as nature, or about the truth of the way things are. And in some ways, I think you can conceive of what we're doing here in our practice as trying to see into that, trying to understand that, and actually trying to align ourselves, our very beings, you know, from the core with the truth. The more we're able to align ourselves with the truth, then the more we live in happiness, in peace, in harmony with others, and the more we live free from suffering, the less suffering we cause others as well. Now the good news is that this dharma, this truth of the way things are, is actually here in every moment. So rather than an esoteric philosophy that was cooked up by this guy in 600 BC, is actually something that this person, this historical person in northern India, now called the Buddha, uh, discovered through the use of these techniques, some of which we are using here today, and he discovered through seeing into the nature of the mind-body system and reality, as we call it, to see what is actually true and what is not true. So the good news is we can actually do that today too. You know, and people have been doing that in practice centers over centuries now and over continents now. So in some ways we're all part of this movement of spiritual practice, this movement of the Dharma as it's spreading across space and time. In my own life, I feel like I have somewhat become a bridge also in this from east to west, you know, as the Dharma becomes modern and uh, comes in the 21st century. Like, how is this communicated? How can this be made useful for us in this day and age, in this place? So this, this understanding of, of the truth of the way things are is that it's, it's just like a natural law. So you could say you're in law school now. You're studying the law, the natural law, right? uh, through observation, through listening, through experimentation. Right? In this way also we could say that you're a scientist, you're exploring through experiments. Well, what is true? You're saying there's suffering and the cause of suffering. And is that actually true? Let me observe this in my own experience saying things like, uh, that which we think and ponder upon frequently becomes the inclination of my mind. Is that true? Let me see if that's true. Let me observe that uh, through experience. 
So the Dharma in this way is akin to a natural law. And you could say uh, something like even the law of gravity. So the law of gravity is something that we don't uh, know about when we're babies necessarily. We're not born knowing about the law of gravity. But you can see sometimes babies experimenting with and trying to learn about gravity. So they might be sitting in their high chair and sometimes they start to drop things off right? and observe. So, oh yeah, drop something on that side and it fell down. Right? So then, let's see, what if I do it on this side? Right? Uh, yep, also the same thing. And or what if you do it and you're not looking, right? Uh, uh, yeah, same thing. Yeah. So after a while, you know, you get the picture. And so you understand, like, oh, okay, if I'm going to place something, it's good to place it not in midair, right? <laughs> place it on a surface, and then it seems to stay. Place it in midair, it's likely to fall, break, splash around, broken plastic, glass, whatever, right? Causes a mess. So we learn to live in alignment with that. And we may not know even, it's like, well, how does that work? You know, you don't need to know the mathematical formula to be able to live in alignment with that. Uh, and you don't even need to know, like, well, who runs that? Is someone running it? You know, how does it work? Right? Uh, you just understand how it works, and then you live in alignment with that, and then you lead a more harmonious life. And if by chance, occasionally, something happens, like, you know, you accidentally this thing falls like that, then I already understood that principle. So I can just pick it up, put it back, and it's minus the added friction that we could call this dukkha, this suffering. So I don't need to be like, why? Why did that happen? Like, why me? Why now? Why is this happening to me? You know? Like, I just have understood, you know, the basic principle of it. And so uh, that level of drama can just be cut out of the whole situation. Right? So here it is with the Dharma, you know, if we understand, like, well, what is, what is suffering? What is the cause of suffering? Right? How can that be uprooted, eradicated? How can I live my life in harmony with the truth? You know, and that includes uh, living from an understanding uh, of cause and effect. You know, living from an understanding about how our actions impact others. And living from an understanding that we are not alone. You know, there is not this solid, separate self uh, called me that is moving through the world and interacting with things uh, in this way that we sometimes perceive it to be. So the extent to which we can understand this and live in alignment with this uh, will impact everything for us. It impacts our individual experience and the level of suffering that we have uh, in mundane ways and in profound ways. And it also impacts how we treat others, how we engage in the world. And as you found from this period of this weekend, you know, it actually takes a little bit of work you know, it takes some work and some discipline. Like, it's not always easy to do this, isn't it? So I appreciate you for the work that you've done this weekend and continuing. But also I'd like to reflect back that uh, there are a lot of things that sound easy or seem simple that actually have taken a lot of work in, in time in life, you know. So including among this is uh, the civil rights movements of our time. So for example, uh, the Montgomery bus boycott. 
So uh, Rosa Parks is well known as the woman who refused to sit to move her seat on the bus in 1955, kicking off this bus boycott. And sometimes the story that you hear about this is just like, well, she was just too tired one day, decided to not change her seat, and then this whole giant thing got kicked off, right? And in actuality, Rosa Parks was an activist who was secretary of the NAACP chapter uh, in Montgomery, and she had been to uh, trainings at a place called the Highlander Center, uh, which is a training center for activists. And so she had done her work, you know, and the movement had actually strategized around uh, who might be some good candidates to be involved in this, uh, this action. And, there, you know, there could be some, something that happened on that particular day, but it wasn't quite so uh, easy as it seemed or uh, random. You know, there were all these different causes going into it. So Rosa Parks says, uh, people always say that I didn't give up my seat that day because I was tired, but that isn't true. I wasn't tired physically, or no more tired than I usually was at the end of a working day. I also was not old, although some people have an image of me as being old then. I was 42. No, the only tired I was was tired of giving in. So on that day, she uh, refused to move her seat on the bus, so it was supposed to be that you, if you were African-American, if white people got on the bus, you had to give your seat to them. And apparently uh, she was sitting in a section with four people, and the bus driver told them to move. And uh, three of them moved, and she was sitting on the outside, and there was another guy in the window. And she said she, she moved her leg so he could get out, but then she moved into the window, you know. And then the bus driver said, like, oh, uh, he said, why don't you stand up? And she said, I don't think I should have to stand up. And he said, well, if you don't stand up, I'm going to call the police and have you arrested. And she said, you may do that. And she says, when the driver came over to make us stand up and waved his hand for us to get out of our seats, I felt a determination cover my body like a quilt on a winter night. You know, it's, it's a quality of heart and mind. You know, it's this quality of heart and mind that both was trained and which manifested that day, you know, which allowed her to take this courageous action. And she said, I only knew then, as I was being arrested, it was the very last time that I would ever ride in humiliation of this kind. So taking your seat with dignity, you know, taking your seat with dignity, that's also in some way what we're doing as we train in this practice. So Martin Luther King Jr. also became the leader of this uh, boycott movement, and he was actually very young when he led this movement. Uh, He was actually 26 years old. He was a minister. uh, And he died at 39. He was killed at 39. So, you know, very young to be such an impactful leader at the time. Had he lived now, he would be 86 today. So it's entirely possible that he would have been alive. But being so young, he actually uh, had some experience, but he didn't have so much experience in some areas. So he had some mentors in the movement. And one of his mentors was a man named Bayard Rustin. Bayard Rustin was a gay African-American man who was 17 years older than MLK. And Bayard Rustin had actually trained as a peace activist 
And he was a hardcore peace activist, if you could say that. So he was part of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, uh, a group that across the board was against war. So they were against World War One. they were against World War II, you know, even wars that everyone else was getting behind. They were like, war is not good. Uh, they were resisting the war. He also uh, was very interested in uh, studying with Gandhi, and Baird Rustin actually went to India to try to study with Gandhi, uh, but Gandhi was killed before he could meet him. Uh, but he studied with the family, and he stayed in the ashram. And eventually he taught Martin Luther King Jr. about Gandhian nonviolent tactics. So Rustin said, I think it's fair to say that Dr. King's view of nonviolent tactics was almost non-existent when the boycott began. He was permitting himself and his children in his home to be protected by guns. So Rustin talked to him about this and trained him in it and convinced him to give up this armed protection, uh, including the use of a personal handgun. And this became a critical part of the civil rights movement. Baird Rustin also trained. Uh, he trained through the American Friends Service Committee. He trained through the Fellowship of Reconciliation. He trained in Gandhi's ashram. So what I'm trying to say is that, you know, these, these different uh, historical figures, sometimes from the stories, it's just like they were there and they were these amazing charismatic people they could do something, but the rest of us, you know, it took training. You know, it's the training and the qualities of the heart and mind. And that takes some hard work. So Martin Luther King Jr. says, human progress is neither automatic nor inevitable. Every step towards the goal of justice requires sacrifice, suffering, and struggle the tireless exertions and passionate concerns of dedicated individuals. So how do we have individuals like that in society? It's individuals who make up movements. How do we have people who can sit with dignity? How do we have people who can live in the light of truth? Who can have the courage and balance of mind to not respond to violence with violence? So I'm LK on training in love. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. <coughs> Hatred paralyzes love. Love releases it. Hatred confuses love. Love harmonizes it. Hatred darkens life. Love illuminates it. So this is the Dharma. You know, this is the truth. And it comes from different voices across time. You know, Buddha himself said, hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. This is a universal law. So we engage in this training, in this noble training, this noble and challenging training, and the world still needs it. So all of these movements are still going on. You know, civil rights, civil rights movement uh, for racial justice is still going on. And in fact, uh, recently there have been both uh, painful, tragic events uh, that have also catalyzed uh, hopeful movements, renewal of movements around the country, around racial justice. So highlighting 
on the amount of violence there is against unarmed young black men. Something that happens over and over again in this country. You know, so often that it's not an individual thing, even though there are particular individuals involved in these circumstances. You know, we have to look at the causality of this. Like, how does this happen over and over again when something happens repeatedly? There's some pattern to be understood. So what, what are the causes of this suffering that's going on? What's the causes of this injustice? So of course, some of this is the history in our country of racial injustice, the history of poverty, the history of gun violence in our country. And some of it, a lot of it actually lies, if you look at it, in the mind. An understanding of the mind, a you know, freedom of the mind that is still not there. So what is it that makes someone, a police officer who's driving up and sees a 12-year-old boy with a gun, uh, choose to shoot him within two seconds, shoot him dead? Right? As happened in the case of Tamir Rice in Cleveland and in many other cases like that, young men of color. And it's not just others for whom this investigation needs to happen. You know, it suggests that all of us have been subject to the same kind of conditioning in our lives. You know, whether we like it or not, whether we want to admit it or not, we all have been subject to the dukkha, the suffering of our society, the legacy of slavery, of white supremacy, of racism. So I think it's incumbent on all of us to pay attention. And our training that we do here in training to understand and see the mind is actually critical in that. So seeing what is it that arises in our mind as thoughts? What are our impressions? What are our perceptions? And probably you've gotten some taste of this already. Every single thought that occurs in our mind is not actually true. Hopefully you've seen this a little bit, right? All kinds of things go through the mind. Yeah. The mind has no shame. It will think anything. <laughs> yeah. And we live in a world of projections. You know, we live in a world in which uh, we're imagining all kinds of different things and then inhabiting that world. And this is how things like this happen. You know, this is how things like the shooting of a 12-year-old boy with a toy gun happens. So you can see this so painfully clearly, you know, when you sit in meditation. You know, here you are, no distractions, and you get to observe the mind over and over again, making things up, and then inhabiting that world. So the, the, there's a good uh, Zen story about this, about someone going to a cave and painting a picture of a tiger, and then looking at it and going, ah, tiger, and running out of the cave, you know. So... What happened? Where was the tiger? Like, oh, they made up the tiger, but they forgot they made up the tiger. <laughs> so observe how often this happens in your mind, over and over again. And you might say that there's different varieties of this. So I'll mention a couple of uh, common varieties that people uh, describe on retreat that happens. So one is something that we 
affectionately called the Vipassana Vendetta. So here you are uh, on retreat. You don't know anyone. Everyone's quiet, going about your business, breathing, walking, eating. For some reason, someone strikes you the wrong way. Could be they put their shoes crooked in the shoe room or uh, they took the last piece of fruit that you wanted or they were a little too slow ladling out the soup, you know. For some reason, you know, the mind decides, like, uh, this person's, like, uh, my enemy, right? <laughs> and then suddenly, next time you're in line, like, who's in front of you? Oh, no, it's them again, right? You know? And there's all this, like, you know, thoughts about them and why they are the way they are and what you would say to them. And, you know, uh, you don't like anything about them after all. You don't like the way they eat. You don't like the way they walk. You don't like the way they breathe, you know? All of this stuff. You're like seething inside. Meanwhile, you don't know the first thing about them, right? I have no idea. Right? And who's suffering? <laughs> so observe this, the Vipassana Vendetta. And then, you know, many times at the end of the retreat, people will go and meet this person and they're totally different than what they expected. They're like, you know, like nothing at all there. It kind of pops the bubble, right? So now on the other side of that, we have the vipassana romance. (laughs) So this is where the mind projects positive qualities onto someone based on the very spiritual way they sit down or (laughs) the very gentle way they turn the corner or uh, open the door or something. And then it's very easy for the mind to start noticing them and noticing where they sit in the dining hall and uh, then starting to imagine how you'll meet them afterwards and you'll talk to them and uh, you'll have a lot in common and <laughs> maybe you'll, you'll decide to go on a date and then you'll have a relationship, you'll move in together and you'll have a nice altar in your apartment with <laughs> right, nice tankas, you might even pick out the pictures from around the center, right? And uh, sometimes people, the imagination goes further in which it, it takes you all the way through the relationship and then you break up even after <laughs> that. You know, right? uh, but in this you can see, again, it's like we're making it all up, you know. Uh, and it's, it's very humbling to see how much energy like, we might put into this, you know, that we live in these worlds of projection. Uh, and we're quite aware also that, you know, Chaz and I are prime projection targets because we sit up here and you're all looking at us too. So there's plenty of of fodder for that here about the teachers and who they are and all this stuff, right? And it's interesting to see this because this is kind of how we construct the world. So this is related also to uh, the metta practice. So as I was mentioning in the metta practice how you know, we, we kind of inhabit these worlds and they're, they're like these mandalas in which there are different concentric circles. You know, those who we're close to and we love and we can wish well for them. And then maybe people we're friends with, we can kind of wish well, but it's a mixed bag. And then vast array of neutral people who we ignore, you know, uh, and then the enemies, right? The people who are difficult for us. And the enemies, interestingly, might be out there, but they also in some ways are the most intimate too. You know, the people that we think about a lot or, you know, that we, there's something intimate about hatred in some strange way, right? So we have this mandala and then it's very interesting to see. It's like, you know, you go to school and then it's laid down. You know, you have your best friend and you have your pack of people and then you have the people you ignore and then 
people you dislike. And then you move to a new job and it's like, you kind of take your template with you and then plunk it down. You know, it gets like repopulated with all of these people. And then you come on retreat, you're not even talking to people. And then still it's possible to repopulate the entire template, you know, with the people who are your friends, you like, you don't like, you know, all this stuff. And we're making it all up. (laughs) You know, this is the stunning thing is like, we're really making it all up over and over again. So seeing into that, you know, being able to see through these machinations of mind, right? And then it becomes particularly critical when you notice that uh, there are actually these ways in which a lot of this becomes conditioned. So there's a, um, a good summary of a lot of social science research that has uh, taken place recently about racial bias uh, in the present. So this is not in the past, right? So regular studies by uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development that sent African-Americans and whites to look at apartments and African-Americans were shown much fewer apartments to rent or houses for sale. Or studies of emails sent to faculty members at universities or even to state legislators who were much less likely to respond to constituents who had names that sounded uh, ethnic or that sounded African-American than they would to white-sounding names. Even auctions on eBay were not immune. So in some of these studies, they had people selling iPods and they were just held in hand, you know, so you could take a picture of the iPod. And the hand was a dark-skinned hand or it was a light-skinned hand. And the ones that were holding the iPod in the light-skinned hand received 21% more offers than those in a dark-skinned hand. Or people who uh, did studies on sending resumes out for jobs and the exact same resumes and just change the names on them. Uh, and the ones that sounded like they would be an uh, ethnic person or a black person uh, were responded to 50% less than those who had a white name. And now in most of these cases, these are probably, uh, when, when actually when so, in some of these cases, people were sort of confronted about this and asked about this, and they all denied it, of course. They were like, of course, it's illegal in many housing and employment and so on, right? Uh, and sometimes there is racism that is overt and people are expressly uh, conducting that and know they are. But I think there also is a lot of the time in which there is an implicit bias that we have. You know, unknown to us, this bias comes through. And it's this that makes it particularly critical for us to attend to, to learn to attend to our minds. As some people, you know, it, it sets them off, like uh, white people who feel like, but I'm a good person, like I don't do that, you know, like I voted for Obama and, you know, stuff like that, right? Uh, <laughs> I drive a Prius, I'm a good person, you know. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, that's not enough. You know, this, the conditioning of the mind is powerful and we've all been soaking in a racist society all of our life. You know, we've been getting conditioning from movies, from TV, from messages, uh, from who's been the president. And that would be everyone but one being a white guy, right? (laughs) Who's powerful? Who's important? Who deserves respect? My own uh, informal experience in this is that, uh, you know, even as a Dharma teacher, uh, teaching in environments in which people are explicitly practicing mindfulness (laughs) and awareness, 
uh, I have many of the similar experiences as I had in my regular uh, work-a-day job as a consultant or as a trainer. I worked in many different kinds of organizations where, for example, uh, you know, we do these groups and um, sometimes we do groups and there's uh, someone who's a teacher trainee in the group. So, uh, you know, I've been teaching for about 10 years. I'm on the teacher's council at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. Uh, and uh, I had a teacher trainee who was a white man. Uh, and the teacher trainees say absolutely nothing the whole tra- retreat, right? They just sit there. Occasionally they ring the bell, but, you know, mostly <laughs> quiet, right? So I've been talking and teaching for like 10 days, you know. We get to the group and uh, several of, of the older white people are looking at the teacher trainee, at the white guy when they're talking. You know, they're addressing all their comments to him. And I'm like, he's not going to say anything. You know, <laughs> you need to talk to me. But it, and it's completely unconscious. You know, I think it's really completely unconscious. It's just like a habitual comfort with who seems to be an authority. Right? Or even more explicitly, you know, uh, oftentimes when I'm teaching, there's someone... Uh, who usually when I look later at their sheet, they've been practicing for like around one month or so, who uh, feels like they have to sort of re-answer questions so that uh, <laughs> answer as a teacher and so on. And this is very similar to what happened to me in the professional world too. So it's just, it's just this conditioning. You know, people are unused to seeing a woman of color as an authority or as a teacher or something like that. And actually recently, even more uh, explicitly in California, I was uh, involved in a conversation with someone about um, teaching meditation to a group in their um, organization. And the guy was telling me about how uh, one of my colleagues and friends was really good for uh, teaching in the organization. He was looking for good teachers, but he couldn't find anyone. And I was, he's actually, my friend is a good teacher, but I was interested to hear what he had to say. So I was like, oh, so what's good about him? And he was like, well, he's a white man who has a normal haircut, and he he looks uh, like all of the other engineers there, so people can relate to him. I was like, oh, interesting that you're telling me this, right, <laughs> out loud. You know, if we were in a job interview, this would be like EEOC territory, but we're just talking, you know, we're just talking. And it, it was completely unconscious how, you know, ridiculously biased he's, he is in this, in this projection. So I'm telling you this because it's there, you know, like none of us are immune. None of us are immune and it's part of our own individual liberation and important and critical for the liberation of our society for us to pay attention, for us to understand the mind, for us to liberate the mind. And then specifically, I think, for us to pay attention to this level of perception and misperception. And this is a key one in understanding both principles of dharma, but also cutting through some of these biases, these implicit biases that are there. So I used to be involved more in uh, you know, larger movements uh, and uh, social movements around liberation. Um, and now I suddenly find myself here uh, teaching a lot of meditation retreats and I'm still involved a little bit, but sometimes I do somehow feel like, wow, how did this happen? Now I'm supervising all these people while they breathe. And, you know, I used to be involved in, like, important movements for social justice. So partly I, I want to talk about this because I feel like part of the work that is my life now is to actually uh, connect these two, you know, connect these, these two movements, this movement of dharma as it comes to the West, and the ways in which this can contribute to uh, the improvement of our society, right? 
So we're part of something larger than just our own individual self. And with practice, there's actually two ways in which we can go, two directions we can go that can help us with liberation. So one is going really micro. So meaning with uh, intensive vipassana practice, we develop concentration and we're able to see on a very minute level how the things that we thought were solid are not solid. So we're able to feel into the body that previously felt solid and notice that it's a bunch of different sensations moving, changing. There's actually no solidity there. It actually reminds me of uh, prior to the rain, I went out into the woods at one point and saw an area that was iced over and it seemed very solid, but then there had been a crack in the ice and you could see the water flowing and actually hear, you know, the noise of the water going. It's like, wow, you know, it's, it's actually like that on the surface. It seems like totally solid, but underneath, it's just a stream. There's no solidity there at all. So you can go micro and see this and see like, oh, that which we used to call ourselves is not really true in that way. You know, there's nothing I can point to and see this as me in some permanent, complete way. And then similarly, we can kind of go macro. You know, we can go large and we can notice the way in which we are connected and actually are here because of so many other people. We can do this by recognizing our connection to nature. You know, how we are actually part of the environment. You know, we eat the food that comes from the environment and that becomes our bodies. You know, we are completely permeable. We breathe the air. We drink the water. Our body is three quarters made of water and that quality of that water impacts us. So we are nature. You know, we are not separate from that. And then seeing also that we're part of something larger than ourselves, even in our own lives, historically. So we happen to be this kind of organic entity that's this packet of genetic material that's then interacted with the environment and food and learning, and you know, it happens to show up at this form in this way. And we stand on the pinnacle, you could say, of all of these ancestors, you know, all of these previous beings who have lived, so biologically. And then for me, I feel like, you know, I stand on the shoulders of all of these people who have worked for justice and for rights. And I literally would not be here without the civil rights movement. You know, I wouldn't be here without the women's rights movement. I wouldn't be here without the LGBT movement. You know, I wouldn't be here in this place. This room would look very different, Yeah. So we stand on the shoulders of these giants. And part of us being something larger than ourselves is actually looking at our own contribution. You know, what is the contribution that we can make going forward? So these movements are still going on. You know, this movement for racial justice, Black Lives Matter. So what we're doing here is very important. And also there are a lot of uh, different demonstrations that have been happening this weekend uh, around the country trying to continue to bring attention to the fact of racial injustice. This weekend, uh, while you're on retreat, the Supreme Court just agreed to take up the case of uh, same-sex marriage in this next docket. So this movement continues in that way. And yet still in 
29 states, you can be fired for being lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. You can explicitly be fired for that. Someone can say, uh, you are gay and I'm firing you because you are gay, period. And you have no legal recourse. And the women's movement still goes on. So women are still being paid 78% of what men are being paid for the same jobs, believe it or not. I was in uh, Iceland um, this past summer, and uh, it's very inspiring to learn about social movements in other countries. So uh, in Iceland in 1975, which was declared the UN Year of the Women, um, women there uh, noticed that they were earning 64.15% of men's wages, and so they decided to hold a general strike and this general strike has decided that um, they would stop working at 64.15% of the day. <laughs> so at 2.08 p.m. on this given day, uh, the women dropped whatever their work was doing, including leaving the kids with the fathers and all that stuff, and took pots and pans and went out to the capital. And like 90% of the women in Iceland showed up at this uh, <laughs> demonstration and they created a giant racket there. And uh, every year now they do some commemoration of this also, uh, which is, I think, a great uh, creative movement. So there are so many people here in the room who are doing amazing things in the world, who have gifts, who have talents, uh, you know, and who have such good hearts. You you can't sit here and uh, be with yourself for even this long without having the kind of good heart that's able to do so much positive work in the world. So I encourage you all to continue with your training. You know, see it as training. And see it as training that's done not just for yourself, but actually for everyone. For everyone that you interact with in the future. For all of the potential good you can do in the world. The extent to which we can free our own minds is the extent to which we can contribute to liberation for all of society. So Martin Luther King Jr. went to... uh, the ashram of Gandhi also uh, in 1959. So he went on a five-week tour of India and he said, Mahatma Gandhi embodied in his life certain universal principles that are inherent in the moral structure of the universe. And these principles are as inescapable as the law of gravity. So again, it's the Dharma. You know, the Dharma is there. If we just pay attention, it pops up over time, over space, in our own hearts, and then through our work in the world too. So thank you for your attention. So we'll just sit together for a moment. Practicing human dignity, practicing presence, practicing honesty, and practicing courage.
we sit quietly for the sake of our own liberation and the liberation of all beings. May we all be free from suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.